Take your Bible, if you would, and open it to the book of Genesis. Um, This is a message called Choices and Consequences from Genesis chapter 13, Choices and Consequences. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Wednesday night group, and thank you that they have come because they know how desperately, we know how desperately we need your word to nourish our souls. This is kind of the midweek point when we need a refreshment. We need a touch. We need nourishment. We need perspective. And Father, every day you give us that through your word, but this is a special time, and it's a special group of people that set aside this time, this hour and a half, to really seek your face and to go deeper And as we look at the book of Genesis tonight, Lord, and we look at Abram and Lot and choices that they both made and the consequences of those choices, even though you are sovereign and even though you're in control of the universe, yet you have decided to give us free will. And within uh, your sovereignty, Lord, somehow there's a mystery to all of this. And maybe in some cases, our free will only goes so far, but But ultimately, Lord, we know that you've made us beings that can choose. And you often, (laughs) in fact, most times, let us live with those consequences. And they can be good and they can be bad. This is about sowing and reaping. This is about deciding who we really want to be. And it's a faith journey, Lord, and we've all fallen short of your glory. We've all made our mistakes. Thank you that you're patient with us. Thank you that your love never fails. It never gives up on us. But tonight, Lord, we want to learn the lessons from Abram and Lot. And so we lay this time at your feet tonight and pray that you would be glorified and our ears would be open to your voice and how you would speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. So Abram had journeyed, remember, to Egypt, and uh, he had gone down there because of a famine in the land. And when he was entering into Egypt with his beautiful wife, Sarai, and remember, at this time, she's 65, and so that gives all of us hope that it doesn't matter how old you get, you can still be beautiful. And he was afraid. He said, you're a beautiful woman, and the Egyptians are going to see you And they're going to want you to join them, and they're going to think that I'm in the way. (laughs) So tell them that you are my sister, that it may go well with me. And in fact, that was the lie that they told. And in fact, we learned last time when we were in Genesis that she was his half-sister, so that was kind of a half-lie. And we tried to dig out the truth whether half-lies are better than full lies. You guys remember that? And did you convince yourself that a half lie is okay? No, it's still not okay. But anyway, Sarai agreed. She said, okay, she did it. She submitted to her husband, which is probably what's behind 1 Peter chapter 3, that some women are fearful of submission to their husbands because they wonder where he's going to take them. And we do understand that. But the husband's given an important role. He's supposed to lead the family toward Jesus Christ. That's a little bit of what Saturday is going to be about. Is your wife closer to Jesus because she's married to you? Are you a leader? Are you leading your family toward Jesus Christ? That's the question that every man needs to ask himself. And there's always a chance to start fresh. There's always a chance to start over. And so Abram, you know, she agrees and all of a sudden she's taken into the harem of Pharaoh. This is not good. All of a sudden, his wife is taken in, and temporarily, he's lost her. And I don't know how you would feel, but I'm sure Abram felt pretty bad about that. Yeah, he was able to protect his own skin, but his wife is now in the harem of the Pharaoh. This is not a good situation at all. And Abram, as he went down into Egypt, Egypt becomes a picture or a type of the world compromised with the world. He decided that he would not be a man of faith. He decided that in the time of the famine, rather than trusting in God and trusting in God's promises, he decided that he would do what everybody else did. And he went down to the Nile region, which was always seemingly prosperous, and there was always, you know, uh, resources and supplies there. But he became a man of doubt. And he was a walking contradiction like a lot of us tend to be. 
You know, we're like the man in the gospel of Mark who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, it seems like one day we can be this great champion of faith and it seems like we're walking by faith and not by sight. And the next day, you know, you can look in the mirror and wonder if you're even a Christian or at least behaving like a Christian. And we can often be a walking contradiction. But the good news about Abram is that in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, he's held up as this tremendous man of faith and it's not really his blunders are not talked about there. His mistakes are not talked about. And some of us tonight, you know, we're, we're hard on ourselves and we tend to focus more on the mistakes that we've made, even if there are a few, than on the many times that we've had victories and we've actually walked in faith. So we need to be careful that we see ourselves the way heaven sees us. You know, I'm not making an excuse when we fall short and I'm not making an excuse for sin because Paul tells us not to do that even though we're saved by grace. Grace is not an excuse for sin. But we also need to realize our identity in Jesus Christ is secure. Whether you have a bad hair day, whether you've come into this place and it wasn't the best, you know, day as a Christian for you. God's love doesn't give up on you. But God does want you to change. We had a sign in the old sanctuary. It said on the outside, come just as you are. But then it said, but don't leave that way. Come just as you are. Come with your baggage. Come with your problems. Come with your struggles. It's okay. We're all in the same boat. But try not to leave that way. Try to take the truths that you hear in the word of God and make some application now for the next few days of the rest of the week. And this is what Abram was. One writer said Abram was like a, he was like us, a paradoxical mixture of self-centered reliance and trust in God. Can you see yourself in Abram? Sometimes totally self-centered, reliant on self, making decisions without even praying or thinking about God. And then other times you feel like, yeah, I'm walking in some victory. Well, you're not alone. Abram is held up as a man of great faith in the New Testament, and yet he had his Egypt experience. And by God's grace, he protected both of them. He protected Sarai, and he protected Abram from devastating consequences. Think about it. If God had not intervened, and God intervened by bringing plagues on Pharaoh's household, and Pharaoh figured it out that there was something wrong, that this actually was Abram's wife, and so God intervened and God protected them both and Abram got his wife back. But that wasn't a guarantee. When we make blunders and we make decisions that lack faith, it's not just about us. It's also about our wives. It's also about our children. It's also about our witness. It's also about our rewards in heaven or lack thereof. Your choices do matter. And Abram's poor choice, his lack of faith, impacted his bride. And by God's grace, he protected her because there was a whole promise attached to Abram and Sarai, which we will you know, continue to discover as we go through the book of Genesis. And God got him out of it. And so valuable lessons, I'm sure, were learned as Abram uh, went from, up from Egypt, notice verse 1, to the Negev. The Negev is the desert region in the southern part of Israel. He and his wife, he got his wife back, verse 1, all that belonged to him, and Lot was with him. Lot was watching Uncle Abram in this situation. You know, it would be nice if all of us could heed the advice to learn from other people's mistakes. How many of you have heard this before? Please, somebody pleads with you. Please learn from my mistakes. It's usually an older person. They have some sparkly grays in their hair. And they say, listen up, young whippersnapper. <laughs> Let me tell you, you don't want to do this. But it seems more times than not, the lots in our lives don't necessarily pay too much attention. And Lot was watching. There was more at stake than just Abram and Sarai. And Abram was able to go up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife, all that belonged to him, Lot was with him. Now Abram, look at verse 2, was very rich. The Hebrew word here is kavod. It means heavy or weighty. In the ancient world, they would uh, you know, kind of uh, figure things out by the weight here. So he was very rich. He had very weighty possessions. He had livestock, he had silver, and he had gold. 
If you look back in Genesis 12, verse 10, when it's talking about the famine, it says the famine was very severe. This is the same word, kavod. It's the idea of heavy or weighty. It's sometimes the idea of God's glory. So it was a severe famine, a weighty famine, and now Abram has weighty riches. And one writer I was reading this week said, that we should keep in mind that as Abram journeys back to the promised land from Egypt back into God's promises, if you will, we should keep in mind of this weightiness. In other words, what he's saying is keep in mind what happened in Egypt, the, the famine, how he went down to Egypt. That mistake should always be in the back of our mind as, as Abram journeys back into the promised land. Some of you tonight, you may have mistakes in the back of your mind. You know, sometimes there's things in our past and we know they're under the blood, but they come up from time to time. And we, we can see, you know, a jagged path. You know, we would like to see a smooth path and we can see, you know, some jags in that, that path. But we can also see God's grace along the path as well. And I think with this word kavod, we're to think about what happened and the poor decision that Abram made and maybe even some of our poor decisions that God has covered by his grace. How many for you? I can tell you many, many for me. Many poor decisions that God could have left me just alone. Things that I had done in my past when I wondered about a lot of big things, what would happen in my life and God has graciously poured his love and goodness into my life. Abram's trip from Egypt back into the promised land prefigures the children of Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus. If you want to mark down Exodus chapter 12, especially verses 30 through 36, they left Egypt with silver, with gold, with livestock. Finally, Pharaoh, after the last plague, the plague of the Passover, the death of the firstborn, said, go, get out, take your stuff, take your livestock. And Moses had instructed the children of Israel to ask the Egyptians for silver and gold, and they got that too. And so remember, the Exodus is after the life of Abram and Isaac and Jacob. That's the book of Exodus. That's the next book. So what Abram is doing, journeying out of Egypt, where he was there and made his mistakes, and journeying back into the promised land with silver and gold and riches, is the same walk that his descendants would make out of Egypt through the Exodus. And in fact, the children of Israel could say, much like our forefather left Egypt in his exodus to the promised land, we're retracing his steps. You are not alone. Many people have walked your steps. Many people have walked the faith journey. And I think if you want to talk to some people, maybe who have some years under their belt in this congregation, they can tell you about God's goodness along the stages of life. And he, he went on his journeys, verse 3, chapter 13, uh, the NIV says, from place to place, from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. It, it tells us in Exodus 17 that the people journeyed in stages, Exodus 17, 1, from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And they traveled in stages. And Abram, when he journeyed back into the promised land, he went from place to place, looking apparently for a place to set up his tent, probably pondering God's goodness and the mistakes that he had made. And Abram is going to uh, re-engage re, uh, with the place where he had set up an altar. Look at verse 4. This is Genesis 13, 4. It says, He went to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram returned to Bethel. If you take the combination of the Hebrew words, it's bait. It's the word for house, an L, E-L. The ending E-L in Hebrew words is the name of God. So Bethel is the house, bait of God, L. So this is where Abram went back. He's back into the promised land. And he goes back to a place where he had set up an altar in the beginning, look back at Genesis 12, look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, Genesis 12, 7, and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there. This is at the Oak of Moreh in Shechem, to the Lord who had appeared to him, Genesis 12, verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. 
And there he built an altar. This is that original altar to the Lord God and called upon the name of the Lord. This is what Abram has done. He's gone back after leaving the mistakes of Egypt. He's gone back to an altar where he first called on the name of the Lord or at least called there in Bethel to the name of the Lord, to the house of God is the place. And here's the application. When you've made some mistakes, when you've bought into the world's lies, when you've gone and made some errors, when you've not operated in faith, one of the best things that you can do is go back to a place of worship. Go back to basics. Go back to the altar. The Christian life is not complicated, you guys. It's really not. The Bible tells us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our reasonable service in view of his great mercy. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then we'll be able to prove what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. It's not complicated. If you find that you've been wandering, if you find that you've been swimming in the consequences of poor decisions, go back to the altar. Go back to basics. Go back to church. Dive into the deep end of saying, Lord, I want to know you better. I've been wandering. I've been making poor decisions. I'm going to go back to the original altar that I made. I'm going to go back to the place when life was simply about worshiping you and letting everything else in my life flow from that. The altar that he had made formerly, that's where he went back to. His journey from Egypt to the Negev to Bethel was apparently a conscious pilgrimage, says one writer, through which he desired, he desired to recapture his previous walk with God. He wanted a fresh start. And this is where he called upon the name of the Lord. And he wanted to retrace his steps. Sometimes we think we got to be at the coolest next thing. We got to read the, the most, you know, the the hottest new book to really fire up our faith. No, you don't. You just need to read the book. Just open it. Sometimes we overcomplicate things. God will speak to you every time you open his word. It's his word. He's already spoken. You just need to read it. Amen? And so here's Abram. He says, in essence, I want to recapture the time when I really had intimate fellowship with you, the time when I built altars instead of worrying about all the other nonsense and he called upon the name of the Lord. What do you think it felt like when he went back to that altar? Maybe he, he wondered in Egypt if he'd ever get back there. He, maybe he wondered, yeah, God made a promise to me, but I've blown it now. And now he's experienced God grace, God's grace and now he's back at that altar. What do you think the first thing out of his mouth would have been? What would yours be? I think mine would be 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. I think he went back to the, that altar, this is my speculation, and said something like this, Lord, I'm sorry. You've given me magnificent and beautiful promises, and I'm sorry for not trusting you. You ever been at that altar before? I've been there many times. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Lord, that I was self-reliant, that I didn't pray more about this situation. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14 says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Bethel is the place of new beginnings. Bethel, it's the, it's the house of God. It's a place of a new start. It's a place of a do-over. And God is the God not only of second chances and third chances and 72nd chances, but he'll, every time you want to start over, every time you want to meet with God, it's a chance for a fresh start. Abram needed cleansing and he needed a new start. Do you? Do you need to go back to that place of that original altar? One writer that we were reading this week in a pastor's meeting said, in the third commandment, God warned his people not to take his name in vain. By this, he does not mean just avoiding profanity. More than that, he is saying, don't take my name upon yourself. Don't claim to be my follower if you're not gonna live like one of mine. Listen to this. If you take his name on your lips as who you say you are 
And if your behavior consistently betrays that confession, then it is vain or empty. Don't take his name in vain. Look at it this way. It could mean profanity, but to take his name in vain means you have his name on your lips, but it's a vain uh, confession. You take his name on your lips, but there's no substance behind it, so it is vain or empty because you say the name of God, but the life behind it is not backing it up. Are you with me? We're not, talking about, we're not talking about perfection here, but we're talking about trying to get to a place of consistency. And Abram has already had his issues. Halfway obedience as he went to Haran instead of going all the way down into the promised land. Um, now he's paid the price for another faith lesson, and I'm sure his wife had to build trust in him again. Can you imagine that walk back to the promised land? You told me to do what? <laughs> Got me in the harem, the harem of this pharaoh. We got problems. <laughs> we need to talk. I'm sure there needed to be some trust rebuilt in that relationship. But they moved forward by faith. And now the camera pans to Lot. Now Lot, verse 5, chapter 13, who went with Abram, and Lot was his nephew, also had flocks and herds and tents. Everybody blossomed in Egypt. Even with all the shenanigans that went on, things were added to them. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions, verse 6, were so great that they were not able to remain together. So here they are back in this area of Bethel, and now there's lots of flocks and lots of herds, and the question becomes, who's going to get the pasture land, and who's going to be first at the drinking well, and, and this creates problems. And, you know, in life, sometimes we think that if we can just win the lottery, if we can just increase our net worth, our possessions, then things will improve. But the material prosperity that happened to both these gentlemen brought issues. Issues between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. The land could not sustain them. Their possessions were so great. And there was strife. Look at verse 7. The word strife in Hebrew is the word reeb. It means a contest controversy, dispute, quarreling. It speaks of contention, an opponent, an adversary. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land, and I think that addition simply means that they also were using the resources of the land. So it's not just Abram and Lot, but it's other people groups that are taking the resources of the land. But think of it this way as well. The Canaanite and the Perizzite were also watching Abram and Lot, who were supposed to represent who? The God of Israel. And I wonder what they thought as they saw the squabbles between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. There was strife between them. Jesus prayed, And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, John 17, 22 and 23, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and did love them even as thou did love me. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? Hold your place in Genesis. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 3. Unity is something that's so important and it's something that we have to try to preserve. Even though it is something that comes from being in the body of Christ, it doesn't always continue easily. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 3. It says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to count how many times you find the word one here. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many ones did you count there? There's seven. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. Isn't it interesting? God wants us to be complete in unity. But we've got to fight for it. We've got to endeavor to preserve it. What are some ways that you think that we preserve unity? I would say making sure we extend Forgiveness and grace regularly to each other. 
I would say preserving unity includes overlooking faults. Love covers a multitude of personality <laughs> traits. <laughs> That's not the exact rendering of the verse, but you know what I'm saying. We've got to learn that to throw the blanket over things that bug us because the things that bug us about others, it probably things that you do bug them as well. So love is supposed to operate in these ways. Love is the thing that holds it all together. In fact, a little later in, um, oh, I think it's in, in Colossians, it, it says that love is what uh, binds it all together in unity. But the love of money is the root, not money, but the love of money is the root of what? All sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have pierced themselves through with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance, and gentleness. So there's going to be a problem between Abram and Lot, and it's going to be about possessions. It's going to be about who's first and whose animals get taken care of. And they're going to take their eyes off, at least Lot's going to, they're going to take their eyes off God's promises. In rapid fire, these are proverbs. These are for you to go back and check but listen to these words. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 13, 10 says, through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 17.14 in the NIV says, Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out or before uh, you have strife. Proverbs 18.6 says, A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. There's some people that you just say, I just feel like slugging that person. Can you say that as a Christian? I don't, I don't know. But a fool tries to get under your skin, and they kind of egg you on sometimes. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. It's an honor of a person when you keep away from strife. Proverbs 28, 25 says, An arrogant man stirs up strife, but one who trusts in the Lord will prosper. And Proverbs 30, 33 says, For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. Everybody turn to Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6. So just Psalms and then Proverbs. There are six things which the Lord hates. Proverbs 6. You guys know there are things that God hates. Six things which the Lord hates. There's going to be actually seven here. There are six things which the Lord hates. 616 in Proverbs. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, Proverbs 617. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, Proverbs 6.19. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among his brothers. Many times in the New Testament, strife and jealousy go hand in hand. This is Romans 13.13. 13. It says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to tell you something about strife and jealousy. They are works of the flesh. When you see deeds of the flesh in your Bible, we automatically think about lists, 1 Corinthians 3. We think about lists that talk about sexual immorality and that kind of thing, and it's true. That's there. But do you know that strife and jealousy are just as much a deed of the flesh? If you're constantly, 1 Corinthians 3 is where you want to be, if you're constantly quarreling with people, if you're constantly jealous of other people, if you're constantly in strife, you're walking in the flesh. Just as much as a person who's in sexual sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 
And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to babes in Christ, carnal Christians. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. And indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and what? Strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm of, Apo- I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Two characteristics of carnality are jealousy and quarreling. Jealousy is the attitude. Strife is the action. Jealousy is the attitude. I'm jealous of that person. I don't like what they have, that they have it and I don't. And strife is the action that comes out. You can see this in your children. Amen, parents? Why did he get that toy? Why did he get that? And all of a sudden, wow! That was an attempt at a cat noise. Strife, jealousy, it comes out. Galatians 5, just go to your right a few pages. Pass up 2 Corinthians, you get to Galatians 5. Look at verse 19. There's the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, but there's also the fruit of the flesh. Here's what it says. Galatians 5.19, now the deeds of the fruit of the flesh, 5.19, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now look at Galatians 5.20 and notice how many of these have to do with broken relationships. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Keep reading. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know why the Bible says that? The Bible says that because it's evidence that if you habitually practice these things, you probably don't belong to Christ. If you are habitually in strife with people. And that becomes your testimony in the world. Striving and quarreling. This person never can be pleased. They don't get along with anybody. There's a warning. We normally don't apply it to strife and jealousy. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Would you turn back to Genesis chapter 13? Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? It's awesome, isn't it? (laughs) So what do you do when a situation like this arises and herdsmen are arguing and fussing with each other and constantly you're getting the report, you know, coming into your tent. Lots herdsmen are at the well in front of our... How many of you have people that come to you all day like this? You own a company, you're a parent. Abram's herdsmen are taking to the... They're taking to good grass. And I'm sure at some point it was like, oy vey. Can't we just all get along? And Abram, verse 8, chapter 13, Genesis, said to Lot, please, let, you ever been here before? Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Unlike Cain, Abram saw himself as his brother's keeper. He said, we're brothers. You know, in the church, We could say the same thing. Please let there be no strife among us. We're brothers. The Hebrew could be rendered this way. I pray you that there be no strife among us, please. Blessed are the peacemakers. Look, you you do what you can to be at peace with all men, and sometimes it's impossible. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. But do your part. If you've exhausted your part, that's when Romans 12, 18 becomes an escape hatch. As much as it depends upon you, but make sure you've done what you can to be a peacemaker. And here's Abram, this great giant of the faith. He's been given all these promises of God and he leads the way. He sets the example. He's the older man and it's appropriate that he brings an appeal of wisdom. How beautiful, how lovely, how wonderful it is when brothers dwell Together in unity, Psalm 133. So Abram comes to him with a peace offering, and he says, is not the whole land before you please? I pray you 
Verse 9, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. In, in essence, Abram, with a second, please let there be peace among us, says, look, we need to solve this. And it's obvious that it's not working and the land can't sustain us. So you go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Abram shouldn't have had to do that. Lot should have done that. The older man who was leading the group and in charge of the whole group, Lot should have deferred to him. Lot should have come to his uncle and said, Uncle, thank you for all the blessings I've received by being part of your group here. It's obvious to me that the land cannot sustain us. I'm going to go. You, in fact, you choose, uncle. You choose where you want to go, and I'll go the other way. But Lot did not do that. And it gives me a little insight about Lot's character. And I'll say this to you. We know from 2 Peter that Lot was a righteous man. But that doesn't mean he was a perfect man. And just like Abram had his issues and his lack of faith and distrust in God and his lies that he told, so Lot was the same. And Lot should have deferred to the older of the family, but he did not do that. And that was inappropriate. And I just want to park here for a second and tell you, we have a lot to work on with the younger generation. We need to teach the younger generation how to shake a hand firmly, how to look somebody in the eye when you meet them, how to have basic manners. We're losing that, you guys. We're we're in a generation where we're coddling too many children. And we need to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Do you agree? Teach them how to shake somebody's hand. Teach them how to be polite. Teach them how to look up from their phone and actually greet somebody. Now, I know we're all looking at our devices. I don't want a broad brush here, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Lot should have deferred to his uncle, but the uncle did it. And he said, look, you choose, and I'll go the opposite way. Don't merely look out for your own interests, Philippians 2 says, but look out for the interests of others. Don't just try to please yourself. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, though existing in very nature, God did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped, but he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and thus God, what? Highly exalted him. He gave him the name which is above every name. In the kingdom of God, when you defer, when you take the last place, even though you have rights, Abram could have said, you know what? I have rights here, Lot. You're the nephew. I'm the uncle. You defer to me, but he didn't do that. And in Abram, we see a type of Christ. The upside down kingdom is you defer to others. You don't just look out for your own interests and you trust that God will bless you. And listen to this. I believe this is an indication that Abram learned his lesson from Egypt. Because instead of doing it and taking it upon himself to make the decision, he deferred. He trusted God with the results. He said, you choose, and I'm going to trust that God is going to lead me the way he would have me to go. And Lot lifted up his eyes, verse 10, Genesis 13, and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like Eden. It was like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. One common thing about all these places, Sodom and Gomorrah, the garden of Eden and the land of Egypt is they were all judged by God. (laughs) Just an interesting insight. And so Lot chose for himself. He looked upon the land, all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents, where? As far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly. This phrase in Hebrew suggests that they were living a level lower than normal sinners, and they were sinners against the Lord. This place had a reputation way back in the day. Lot probably knew about the reputation, but he looked at the travel brochure, and it sure looked nice. (laughs) Green, Places, well-watered, Jordan Valley, beautiful, like compared to the Garden of Eden or the 
rich, beautiful places of Egypt near Zoar. And so he looked, but did he look with the eyes of faith? I don't think so. I think he looked with the eyes of the flesh, and he said, but that's a beautiful place. See you later, uncle. Good luck in the desert. (laughs) I'm going over there. I'm claiming that for myself. And he, notice, settled, keyword, in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tents as far as Sodom. And you all know, if we fast forward in the story, that this becomes a very bad career move for Lot. Very bad. In fact, the word down would describe what is happening now in Lot's life. Quickly, the first step in Lot's fall was he looked towards Sodom, Genesis 13.10. The place had a bad reputation, but he pitched his tent, Genesis 13.12 NIV, near Sodom. He liked the advantages of the area. He, he didn't think, uh, we won't get caught up in the life. Maybe he said, uh, we can handle it. Me and my family will be good. And you know, Lot, the Bible tells us, was vexed by the unrighteous behavior of the men and women of Sodom. But you know what? Even though he felt like he could handle it, his family couldn't handle it. His wife became enamored with Sodom. In fact, when the angels are leading them out of Sodom, she what? She looks back. She, her heart was there. His sons-in-law, his daughters married men from Sodom. His sons-in-law, when he warned them about the destruction of Sodom, they thought he was joking. He lost his wife at Sodom. His daughters, there's an escapade that happens with his daughters right after that terrible destruction, which we'll learn about later in the book. And it would appear that with all of Lot's compromises and justifications in Sodom, he did not have one single convert. In fact, he lost his wife there. Oh, we can handle it. We'll set up the tents right near Sodom. The land's beautiful. Oh, those people won't touch us there in Sin City. We'll be good. So Genesis 14, 12 tells us that he took another step. He was living in Sodom, Genesis 14, 12, a story that's ahead of us. And finally, he was sitting in the gate of Sodom, Genesis 19, 1. Not only did he move into town, but he became one of the elders of the city, one of the leading businessmen and perhaps even a judge of the city. You see, it was a slide down. Boy, it looked good to the eyes. Remind you of something? Genesis 3. And then, well, we'll be fine. We'll just move to the edge of town. Oh, no, we'll be in town. Oh, I think I'll become an elder because I can be a change agent in town. And Lot left there with less than he brought in. And we think, oh, we can do it. My family can handle it. No, your wife couldn't. And Jesus says in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. It didn't end well. The decision that Lot made in the flesh was a decision that not only impacted him, it impacted his family. It was the biggest mistake of his life. Yes, Lot was righteous. Yes, he was vexed by the ungodly behavior in Sodom, but no, it doesn't mean just because Lot didn't like what was going on that he didn't compromise and he sacrificed his family at the altar of what looked convenient. We can go here. We can do this. It's okay. Instead of humbling himself before his uncle, he let his flesh lead the way. James Montgomery Boyce comments, Lot looked from the heights of Bethel to the plain of the Jordan He saw that it was well-watered like Eden or Egypt and chose the Jordan. You may think that you are different from Lot, but if you have put your job ahead of your family's spiritual life, if you've put social advancement ahead of a proper association with God's people, if you've let your choice of home keep you from a church in which you grow in faith and worship, you have moved from the highlands to the plain of the Jordan. I know you will say that you can serve God there as well as at Bethel, Lot would have said, I'm as eager as you to serve the Lord. After all, the cities of the plain need witnesses too. That was true. They did. But Lot's heart was not about witnessing. He was doing nothing for God. His heart was set on his possessions, sophistication, glamour. And for that, he lost everything. In fact, the statement in 1 Corinthians 3.15 that One will be saved as one escaping the flames, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, excuse me, 3.15, 
may be a picture of Lot. He was saved, yet as through the fire. What fire? The fire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord, look at 14, we're wrapping it down now, said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. So now the camera pans back to Abram, and Abram watches Lot go off, and what do you think is in his mind? Hmm. Well, my nephew did not defer to me. I wonder what he's going to find over there. Boy, that is beautiful land. But Lord, you're teaching me to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to walk by faith. And the Lord spoke to Abram. He said, look at right after he separated from Lot. Now lift up your eyes, verse 14, and look from the place where you are, northward, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Look all around. Lift up your eyes. This is the same language that described Lot's intense look at the Jordan Valley, but now Abram was told by God, look, look around, look in all directions. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. You made a decision by faith. Now I'm going to give you eyes of faith. According to the Genesis Apocryphon, in chapter 21, this is a Jewish writing, they were at Ramoth Hazor, about five miles northeast of Bethel, at the highest spot in central Israel, well over 3,000 feet high. From there, Abram could view Mount Hermon in the north, the Dead Sea and the hills of Hebron to the south, the Jordan to the east, and the Mediterranean, to the sea, Mediterranean Sea in the west. And everywhere he looked, God said, that's yours. That's yours. I'm giving that to you. And Abram was assured that he had made a good decision. Even the land that he thought he had given up was his. It was all his. And God, right after a test of his faith, spoke to him. And I've noticed that this is what God does in my life. I'll make a decision. Sometimes it's a hard decision and God will reassure me by something I hear that I've done what he's called me to do. All the land which you see, I will give it to you, 15, and to your descendants forever. For Abram, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10. Do you need some eyes of faith tonight? You need some fresh perspective from heaven. You need to know that a decision that you made for the sake of the kingdom is the right one. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Sometimes you just got to pray, Lord, give me your eyes. Because what I see right now doesn't make sense to me, but give me eyes of faith. And God says, and I will make your descendants, 16, literally your seed, as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, remember, he's got a wife that's barren right now, then your descendants can also be numbered. And God says, arise, this is Australian now, and go on walk about. Verse 17. Walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. God says, now look at, look at it, now start walking, and every step you take is yours. Every step you take, step by step, he leads me, and I will follow him all of my days. The life of faith is a step-by-step -step walk claiming territory for Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? And God says, start walking, go on walk about, walk everywhere, everywhere you walk, claim that land because it is yours and it is from me. Earliest Jewish commentaries in concert with the practice of the ancient world understood God's directive walking about the land was a symbolic act signifying legal acquisition of the land. He was thus seeing the promises and literally walking upon the promises by faith. Every step he took, he said, that's mine. That's mine. Those three, they're mine. That's mine. That's mine. And that's what you got to remember as a Christian. In fact, the Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to him 
get this, belongs to you and me. I don't know if I believe it. Believe it. Just say, he's mine. That's mine. And look with the eyes of faith. That's what it means to walk by faith. You see, before us is two men. One look with the eyes of the flesh. And one look with the eyes of faith. Are you depressed, downcast? Can you not even look up? I heard a story about a man who found a $10 bill on the sidewalk. So excited to find that bill, he just looked down and there was $10. And he spent the rest of his life looking down for money. (laughs) Never looked up again. Is that you? Why so downcast, oh my soul? Think about it. Downcast means you don't even want to look up anymore. And God says, lift up your eyes. Maybe Abram, when Lot walked off, he, maybe he looked down. And God said, lift up your eyes. Look all around you. You haven't lost one foot of ground. All of this, as far as your eye can see, is yours. And Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, 18, which are in Hebron. And there, what did he do? He built an altar. To the Lord. Pastor Chris, would you come up? And would you all turn to Psalm 121? Pastor Chris is going to share a song with us that goes with this psalm. Psalm 121. Would you all turn there? This is our final scripture. Psalm 121. I want you to see this for yourself and mark it as the Lord would speak to you. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121 verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil, and he will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Father, thank you so much that in the story of Abram and Lot, we see choices and consequences Thank you that you are so gracious when we make mistakes and lack faith. Thank you that you're leading us into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Until that day comes, give us fresh eyes of faith to know how much we possess in Jesus Christ. We are richer than we could ever imagine. And when we go through hard times and we're downcast and struggling and wondering what decision to make, which way should we turn, Help us to walk by faith and not by sight and know that you are our help. I look to the heavens, I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. If you love me enough to die on the cross and rise from the grave, then I think we can trust you with the rest. But help us, Lord, increase our faith. Strengthen us in this area of our walk. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.